0: We are going to be continuing our study in the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that's where we're going to be. And it's a somewhat difficult text, not so much difficult to understand as it is difficult to swallow because of the content that's in it. Sometimes it can seem like the topic of church discipline of excluding a member of a church from the church, well, doesn't that seem somewhat contrary to Jesus? Isn't isn't Jesus all about love and acceptance? Isn't Jesus about affirming who He's made us to be? And so, who are we then to judge? Doesn't the Bible say that we shouldn't judge lest we be judged? For all of these and many other reasons, texts like this are difficult for us in our own kind of modern and Western and individualistic lenses to fully wrap our minds and our hearts and our, and our arms around. And yet I think what's interesting is that in our own culture, we really have very little problem with the notion of exclusions. And so even just in recent weeks, you see news about Perhaps a professional athlete being dismissed from his team, suspended from the league or the team because of, quote, conduct detrimental to the team, conduct detrimental to the league. That that team might say to some degree to wear this jersey is to uphold these sets of values such that if you publicly live in a way that contradicts these values, you cannot wear our jersey because you don't represent us well to the world We seem to have very little problem with that when it comes to professional sports. Even in our own professional lives and our our businesses, we might say something similar that when when a man or perhaps a woman conducts themselves in the workplace in a way that is contrary to the stated values and commitments of the company, then we are in those instances committed to removing them from the company because if we were to continue to keep them there, not only would it affect their own work, it would affect the work of everybody in the company. And so it's a good thing to remove and to separate ourselves from bad workers, bad employees for the sake of the company as a whole. And all of these ways and many, many more, we really have very little idea or really very little problem with the idea of separating from others for the good of whether it be our team or our company or maybe even our own families. Many of you know, perhaps some of you have felt the sting or pain of having to ask perhaps a child to leave your home because of conduct that was detrimental to the home. Imagine how heartbreaking that is. You can replace an athlete, you can replace a worker at your job, but you can't replace a son, and you can't replace a daughter. And yet there are countless homes that have to make decisions like that every single day. And there's a sense, analogously speaking, where it's really no different in the church. And if you think about it, if we're talking about matters that pertain to the gospel, matters that pertain to the most significant things in the universe, then should we, not above all people, be concerned about the members of our family living lives of integrity with the values that are in line with the gospel we claim to profess? That's the problem that we see in the church in Corinth right here in chapter 5. Paul's about to address it. And in it, we have a scandalous sin being addressed, and we have a church that has been tolerating it for far too long. And to do so is to confuse the world. To do so is to confuse the sinner. To do so is to confuse and even disrupt the church. They are in dangerous territory. So Paul, putting on his apostolic hat, is going to lay down practices that are going to be necessary for the authority given to them as a church to guard the gospel and to guard even their own holiness and witness to the world. Like I said, it's a difficult passage because it deals with difficult things, painful things, but God has put it here for our instruction that we would not presume to be wiser than God in the way that we organize our churches, but rather in our humility we would submit to Him. And so with that in mind, would you stand with me for the reading of God's holy word, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Leavens the whole lump, cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, for you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, and so let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedies or, 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 or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world, but I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed. Or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler not even to eat with such a one? What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You can be seated. Scholars have noted the beginning here in chapter 5, Paul seems to be following the same pattern as the purity codes in the Old Testament. Leviticus 18 to 21 lays out laws concerning Israel's purity as a community. And in Leviticus 18, it begins with sexual immorality. And so here's an issue that we so often think is maybe more peripheral in God's concerns. And both in the Old Testament and in the New, God has made it central to his concerns of what it means to be a human, of what it means to be his people, those who have been called to live holy lives for his glory in the world, and what it looks like to honor him with our bodies in such a way that, that gives a testimony to his glory and grace to the world. Well, here in our passage, we're going to see Paul make an argument for the removal of one who is so far gone in persistent and unrepentant sin that the church would, in a sense, cleanse itself, purify itself. We're going to see in verses 1 through 2, Paul is going to say, remove the sinner from among you. And if that seems a little harsh to you, he's going to say in the rest of the passage three reasons why this is a good thing. He's saying you need to separate, first of all, in verses 3 through 5, for the good of the sinner. For the good of the sinner. But secondly, you need to separate from this man in verses 6 through 8 for the good of the church. You need to separate from him for the good of the church. Then finally, in verses Nine all the way through 13, he's going to conclude by letting them know that it is good for you to separate from this individual for the good of the world, of the watching world. So Paul is concerned with a painful issue, and we're going to have to dive in it. And yet, even as we do, let's keep in mind that this is the mind of Christ for the ordering of our churches that we might be a people to his glory. Notice in verse 1, he says... It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. That phrase in your Bible, sexual immorality, comes from the Greek word porneia. I'll let you use your imagination for what word we get from that word. It refers to all unauthorized sexual activity outside of the marriage covenant. The issue here, as we can see in verse 1, is ultimately incest. That verb has, a man has his father's wife implies an ongoing sexual relationship between a church member who calls himself a Christian and a woman who's married to his father, presumably his stepmother, not his own mother. Doesn't seem to be the case. Either way, the Bible doesn't tolerate it, condemns it in the book of Deuteronomy, and apparently even the Corinthian pagans didn't tolerate it. This was scandalous to them in verse 1. And yet what's even more scandalous for Paul Then this brother's sin is the church's response, or rather the lack thereof. Apparently, this man's sin was known by the church, so known that it was tolerated for some time by the church. So the question is, why haven't they done something? Well, we get a clue at the beginning of verse 2. He says, and you are arrogant. There's a couple of ways that we might take that. First of all, we might take it to say that the church is proud of the sin itself. Maybe that's what he means down there when when it says your boasting is not good. Boasting in the leaven in the church. Look how tolerant we are. Look how permissive and free we are. Maybe that's the expression of their arrogance. But secondly, and I think more likely... Paul may be saying, how can you be so puffed up? Remember that language from the first four verses? How can you be so proud and so arrogant to think that you are the greatest church in all of Greece with all of your gifts when you're permitting sin like this? How can you be so puffed up, blind to what is going on? Have you forgotten who you are? Have you forgotten what God has done for you? Ought you not rather... He says, middle of verse 2, ought you not rather to mourn? He uses the same language that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount. You may remember James uses it at the end of his own letter as he's rebuking uh, the saints in a church for, for divisions. He says, Stop celebrating. You, shouldn't you rather be mourning, mourning over your sin, mourning over the divisions in the church? Shouldn't you be mourning? Paul's saying, This man is in real, eternal danger. Why are you boasting? Why are you so arrogant? Shouldn't you be sad instead? This is where things have gotten. Not only that, shouldn't you mourn over the fact that the church as a whole is in danger? You are supposed to be, chapter 1, the fellowship of Christ Jesus our Lord. But this makes him look really, really bad. And so this is not a time for arrogance. It's a time for sorrow. And he says in verse 2, it is a time for action. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Paul's going to say essentially the same thing in different ways in at least five times in this chapter. We see it here in verse 2. Look down at verse 7. He says, cleanse out the old leaven. Again in verse 11, don't associate with this man. Verse 13, purge the evil person from among you, but perhaps most strong of all, verse five, deliver this man to Satan. Whoa. We'll get to that in a minute. We need to keep in mind that removing a member from the church is not an easy topic. It's painful for everyone involved. We've had to put some of our own members out of the church. And for those of you who are involved in those meetings, you remember what a sobering and quiet pin drop moment that is when the vote is cast. And that's the way that it should be. It might even feel perhaps in our own cultural instincts unloving. Aren't we to be a people of grace after all? Yet even though separation is painful, it is biblical, and it is essential, and it is loving, and it is good. Why is it a good thing? Why is separating from a sinful brother, why is church discipline the putting out of a sinful individual from the church, why is it good? Paul gives us three reasons. Verses three through five, separate for the good of the sinner. That's reason number one. And that's what we see here. For though I'm absent in the body, I'm present in spirit, and as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Then when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Many of you have a favorite song or you have a piece of music that you love above everything else, and in it there's likely some kind of build-up to the main refrain or the main riff well, verses 3 through 5 are kind of like that. In the original language, it's all one sentence. And it builds to the climax there in verse 5. Take a look at it. We see, first of all, I'm going to work my way backwards through this paragraph. We see, first of all, in the end of verse 5, the motivation of church discipline, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord here speaks to that day when Jesus returns to judge all men. Paul's desire is that he be saved on that day, that he be able to stand on that day and and find that, in fact, he is in Christ by faith, and that he is not merely a nominal Christian, a Christian by name only. Depart from me, I knew you not. And so his removal from church, it's not ultimately punitive. It's not about punishing the man. It's ultimately about his repentance and his restoration. As we go through this passage, this is something that you and I need to keep in mind is that goal that we see there at the end of verse 5, that the the goal is always related to salvation. It is related to repentance and, and restoration to Christ and to his people. But even so, the language of verse 5 is pretty shocking, isn't it? Look at what he says at the beginning of the verse. He says, you are to deliver this man to Satan. Here, Paul's provocative language is actually making a very practical, but also a theological point. He's telling the church to treat this man as one who is not part of the church's fellowship. Remember, I've already referenced it once. In chapter 1, they are the fellowship of Christ Jesus, our Lord, and so... To put this man and deliver him to Satan is to treat him as not part of the church's fellowship. So the Bible teaches that there is, in a sense, at least two domains. There is two kingdoms... The domain of darkness ruled by Satan and sin and death and the kingdom of God's beloved son. Now it's not as if these two kingdoms are equal in power like yin and yang battling against one another. There's nothing that happens in the kingdom of darkness that ultimately falls outside of the sovereign rule of Christ. But in terms of his visible rule and kingdom on earth there is the world and there is the church. There is those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. Those who have rejected the gospel and the lordship of Christ and those who have come to repent and believe in the gospel and to follow Christ by faith. And so to deliver this man to Satan means to relate to him as one who is not in Christ's fellowship because his persistent sin speaks about where his loyalties ultimately lie despite what he may confess with his lips. His life says that he has rejected the lordship of Christ. And this is a time for mourning. It's serious stuff. And ultimately, what is the goal? Well, Paul tells us the goal of handing someone over to Satan. It is for the destruction of the flesh. What does that mean, for the destruction of his flesh? It doesn't, it doesn't mean I don't think that the man's going to die. It's a technical term used by the Apostle Paul to describe persistent indwelling sin, that we wage war against the flesh. The flesh wages war against the spirit. In the spirit, we aim to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And I think Paul's referring to the same thing here. That the goal of putting this man out of the church is that his fleshly persistence in sin would be put to death, that it would be destroyed that Lord willing, when the whole church speaks, you are out, this man would wake up and he would see how deceptive and destructive his sin really is. Of how he's disobeyed God's word and denied the Lord Jesus with his life. And seeing that by God's grace, he would turn from it. And so in this instance, he would need to perhaps publicly confess his sin, terminate the relationship that he's in with his father's wife, and then work to repair whatever relational damage his sin has caused before he's welcomed back into the church. And all of that is with one ultimate goal, and that is that his spirit might be saved at the day of the Lord. That the church's concern, above all other concerns, is this man's relationship to Christ. And they cannot conduct themselves and we cannot conduct ourselves in any way that would communicate something to any brother or sister in ongoing, unrepentant, persistent sin that might communicate to them that they are something other than what they may in fact be or that the behavior that they persist in is in fact okay with Jesus. Because it's not. If you're here and you're a non-Christian and you're... Just here investigating Christian things, this probably not what you were expecting when you came in. Maybe at first glance this seems rather unloving and exclusive to you. Perhaps it even confirms some of your preconceived suspicions about Christians being unloving and kind of separatist people. But, friend, I would have you know that this is all ultimately about the gospel, it's about redemption and restoration because it's ultimately about the heart of God's work in the world bringing salvation to sinners that's found only in Jesus Christ the very salvation that's held out to you if you repent of your own sin and believe upon him for salvation that you might be saved just as he might be saved but to those of us who have already been brought to repent and believe in Christ to those of us who are Christians how do we then as a church get to this point Well, Paul gives us instructions in the previous verses, verses 3 and 4. He says, first of all, I am present in spirit whenever you're assembled. Paul wants them to set aside their arrogance. He wants them to listen to Jesus as apostle. He wants them to listen to himself. And he wants them to start making gospel-shaped judgments and decisions in the church. He says, I am present with you in spirit. And what does that mean? We see one clue at the end of verse 4. That there is a connection between Paul's instruction, even from a distance, and the power or the authority of Jesus. Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus. He was commissioned by Jesus to speak with Jesus' authority for the sake of ordering Jesus' churches according to Jesus' will. That's what an apostle does. So, his words are authoritative and they are normative not only for the Corinthian church, but they are normative for us as well. And we need to listen to them in that way. And so, in other words, listen to me Jesus and Paul are not at odds with one another, and I don't care what modern biblical scholars say otherwise, they're in perfect harmony with one another. Paul's words come with Jesus's authority. And so to obey Paul in these matters is no less than to obey Jesus himself. There is a sense in which the whole Bible is red letter, not just the bits and pieces that we like. And this leads us, I think, to make our first observation on how we're to approach church discipline. And I'm going to give you a handful of points First of all, all church discipline must submit then to the word of Christ. A person can only be removed from a church when scripture warrants it. There's no place for shrewd politics. There's no place for personal agendas. And there's no place for heavy-handed leaders. We submit to scripture, the word of Christ. But secondly, church discipline that submits to God's word is congregational. It's not an isolated decision to be made by a select few in the church. It's not a quiet backroom decision by the church's leadership. It's not even a cavalier judgment by a single pastor demanding that somebody leave the church. Paul says here that the power of Jesus for this kind of judgment is only legitimate and is exercised in a special way when the whole church is assembled in the name of Jesus. You may remember in Matthew 18 that Jesus uses similar language. There's no way that we're going to be able to do an entire topical sermon on church discipline. That's another sermon or series of sermons for another day. I want to try to stick as closely to 1 Corinthians 5 as I can. But Jesus says something similar in Matthew 18 that in the end, only a church, literally the assembly, has the authority to speak publicly for Jesus in this way. And so Jesus said, whenever I gather in my name, whenever you gather in my name for this purpose, I am with you such that when you pronounce judgment in a manner that's consistent with my word, I am there to affirm it and uphold it. You are speaking in a sense with a kind of deputized authority, my heavenly authority on earth concerning true gospel professions and true and false gospel professors, Well, Christ, and now the Apostle Paul, assigns this kind of authority to congregations only. He doesn't authorize churches to delegate this authority to any subset of the church, including their elders. And elders are not authorized by Jesus to hijack this authority from congregations and take it on themselves. Well, my church is too immature to do this. I'll just handle it myself. Jesus has not authorized pastors to do that. And so Paul doesn't say when the elders are assembled, and he doesn't say when your small group is assembled. No, what he says is that Jesus, he says with Jesus that this kind of judgment can only be made when the whole church is assembled together in his name. A third point. Church discipline is to be under the word of Christ. Church discipline is congregational. But thirdly, not all church discipline is handled in the same way. Notice also that Paul calls the church to make here an immediate decision. You might say, well, why isn't Paul following the pattern of Matthew 18? I think we do best to think of church discipline as existing on a spectrum. From private and personal, which seems to be the context of Matthew 18, of going to those privately, those who have sinned against you personally, to try to win them, to gain your brother. And doing so privately in order to establish evidence in such a way that you would guard their reputation. It doesn't need to be overly scandalous. The two of you can work it out. And then nobody else really has to know. Nobody else needs to get involved. But here we see there's also sins that are publicly known and scandalous. They're not private and personal And that's what we see here in 1 Corinthians 5. And so the aim of Matthew 18 is to keep private offenses private for as long as possible unless sin is not repented of. And all for the sake of winning a fellow brother or sister. But in this instance, the man's sin was known by the church for some time and the church was publicly scandalized by it. And so for known, scandalized sins like this, Paul doesn't prescribe three steps, but one. The whole church needs to come together and immediately remove this man from their membership. You don't need to gather evidence. All the evidence you need can be seen with your eyes and heard with your ears. Everybody knows it. Even the Corinthian pagans know it, and they wouldn't tolerate it. And so those three steps have been bypassed. It's time to make a judgment And Paul authorizes the congregation to do exactly that. It's not a hasty decision, but it's also not a prolonged decision because great things are at stake. The church needs to speak, Paul says. And you need to speak now. For the good of our brother, for the good of the church, and the good of the world. Fourthly. I would just remind you that church discipline also has a positive motivation. Remember that we've noted from verse 5 that church discipline is a means of God's grace for the destruction of persistent sin in a person's life. And so though it may feel in our flesh to be somewhat unloving to remove somebody from the church, we need to remember that this is, according to God's word, a means of grace that God has appointed for the good of those who are truly His. And for those who truly belong to Him, it will have its full effect And renewing unto them repentance that they might persist in true faith in Christ has a positive motivation. But finally, and also by way of reminder, the ideal end of church discipline is always repentance and restoration. I said it just a few minutes ago. Whether the process is mostly private and methodical like we see in Matthew 18, or whether it's more public and scandalous as we see here. The goal is always, always, always salvation. It's always repentance, and it's always restoration. It is to gain our brother or sister back to Christ, and so whenever somebody is put out of our church because of persistent, unrepentant sin, we don't celebrate. Man, it's good to finally get that character out of our church. Now, rather, we mourn. And we pray, Lord, be merciful to our friend. Be merciful to us that you might use this painful decision as a means of grace for his quick restoration. Paul gives an encouraging illustration, I think, of this in his instruction from 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Just keep your finger here in 1 Corinthians 5 and move to your right a little bit. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 or 2 Corinthians chapter 2, rather. Look at verse 5. Remarkable, remarkable passage. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. In other words, if somebody's persistent, unrepentant sin has brought the kind of pain upon the church that has required the church by the majority of its members to put them out that he's not just done it to me, but he says he's done it to the whole body. Verse six, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. It doesn't need to be any more punitive than what Christ has authorized in his word. So you should rather turn to forgive and to comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. In other words, he's saying, do not start putting additional requirements for being included back into the church apart from repentance and faith in Christ, or you will lead that brother to discouragement and excessive sorrow. He says, so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Isn't that amazing? While restoration may not always be the outcome, it certainly hasn't been for the handful of those that we've had to put out of our church, that we pray that perhaps one day it will be, sometimes it really will be the case. And though we can't prove that this refers to the man from 1 Corinthians 5, the Lord ultimately knows we can at least walk away with the notion that God's grace through the pain of church discipline very well may have led to the man's restoration. And that's really good news. So, here we've seen that church discipline has a corrective and restorative function in verses, in verses three through five, but there's also a protective function to the church. That's Paul's point, in verses six through eight, that it's also not just for the good of the sinner, but the second good reason to separate from. One who is in ongoing, unrepentant, persistent sin is for the good of the church. And notice in verses 6 and 7, he takes us into the bakery. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He's saying, as God's redeemed people, you are to be like unleavened flatbread. Huh? What is he talking about? doesn't make any sense, does it? Well, if you know your Bible, it makes all kinds of sense. What Paul's doing is taking us back to the Exodus. When God brought judgment against Egypt, his people Israel were saved from his wrath by the substitute death of a spotless lamb. And after this, they left Egypt in a hurry and they took with them unleavened bread. You may remember that. It was totally pragmatic on the one hand. Easy to carry because they're going to be on the road for a long time. And yet, the main reason that we're able to see here in 1 Corinthians 5 was not ultimately pragmatic or practical. The main reason for unleavened bread in the Exodus was theological. Israel would remember God's redeeming work. You may remember by celebrating a festival of unleavened bread each year at the same time. Look at how great God is. Look at how holy he is. Look at what he did for us in his mighty hand to redeem us from slavery to Egypt. And consider what kind of people we are to be in light of what he has done for us. It was a reminder of who they were. It was a reminder of what they were redeemed for. They weren't slaves anymore. They were God's redeemed people. And they were called to be a holy people, just as God is holy. Well, in all of that, the gospel was revealed. And it would ultimately be fulfilled by Christ and in his church. That's why the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, remember who you are. Not just remember who the Israelites were. Remember who you are. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He is the Lamb of God who takes away all of your sins. Friends, we need to be reminded from this text that Jesus died as a substitute in our place to satisfy the very wrath of God against our sin. He took God's wrath upon himself so that we might be redeemed from our slavery to sin and its penalty of death. And so that we might be reconciled to God at his, as his beloved and holy people. And so Paul is saying here in this paragraph, remember who you are. Verse 8, let us therefore celebrate the festival. He's not calling the church to go back to the old covenant. He's not telling them they need to go back and start observing ceremonial laws that were given to Moses. He's calling us to live as unleavened people. To live, in verse 8, sincerely with Jesus as our Lord. That is, looking forward to his return, sure of our salvation, and empowered to live holy lives for his glory in the present. And so he says, no more arrogance. No more boasting. Instead, be concerned for one another's salvation. Don't let the leaven of unrepentant sins spread to the church because, as he says in verse 6, a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. We're right back in the bakery again. And the image here is not of yeast, but ultimately of leaven. And so when you bake bread, you keep a little bit of that fermented dough back each time so that you can make another loaf with it. Now, a bunch of you do this at home with your sourdough starters, and you feed it like a little baby every day. It's like your little sourdough baby. Over time, you, you feed it, and like your own little baby, the leaven permeates everything, and the dough grows. Paul's saying that is what unrepentant sin in the church is like. It's like leaven that spreads in every part of the church's life. Everything becomes toxic. For you businessmen in here, how does a toxic culture grow in a business environment? Doesn't it often start small and then and then spread slowly everywhere? That spirit of one-upsmanship, of backbiting, and of gossip and slander, perhaps of laziness. Sin always has a corporate dimension. We know that to be true in our own workplaces, and Paul's saying that's true in the church as well. Sin tolerated leads to sin permeated. That's the principle. A little leaven will eventually leaven the whole lump, he says. And so Paul is saying, for the sake of the gospel and the good of the church, get rid then of that old rotten leaven and be an unleavened people. Remember who you are, redeemed by God, called to live holy lives for his sake. Well, the obvious application from this passage, as we've already noted, is to remove members who are living in persistent and unrepentant sin. That's what's in focus here. But the question that goes in my mind all week as I'm considering this passage is how can we help one another, so flee temptation, and put fleshly persistence of sin to death before it ever gets to this point? How can we unleaven ourselves on the regular? Let me give you a handful of points. First of all, we need to repent regularly. Second London Confession is so helpful in this regard as repentance is to be continued through the whole course of our lives upon the account of the body of death and the motions thereof. So it is every man's duty to repent of his particular known sins particularly. It is to be continued through the whole course of our lives. Repentance is the entry point of the Christian life and by God's grace, it's the posture of the Christian life until sin is once and for all done away with in the new heavens and the new earth. And what does God a point then to help us do that? Well, one thing that the confession particularly points out is the constant preaching of repentance. He says it's necessary. Why does Pastor Jeff keep preaching sermons that talk about sin all the time and, and talk about us having to turn from it and, and trust in Christ and by his grace obey his word? Because that's a means of grace that God has given to his churches so that we might walk in this kind of repentance and not end up where the Corinthians have ended up here in 1 Corinthians 5 by his grace. And so the problem in many churches, unfortunately, and perhaps if we were to dig deep enough, maybe even, maybe even a problem in our own church, it's not ultimately the presence of sin, but the absence of repentance. So first, we need to repent regularly. But secondly, we need to love enough to speak up. Do you realize how countercultural it is? When a man who is sleeping with his stepmother is being treated as if there's nothing wrong with it at all, how countercultural is to the gospel, to a gospel culture in the life of the church. It says they've tolerated it for some time. They knew it. And I wonder if their excuses for tolerating sin in their midst might match some of our own. Well, I don't really know him that well. Maybe somebody else knows him better. Well, you know, I really don't want to be too judgy. Who am I to say something when I'm dealing with my own sin? Wouldn't that make me a hypocrite? Or maybe, well, that's not really my responsibility at all. That's the pastor's job. And yet I wonder if the common theme in all of these excuses might just be a simple and and at the same time powerful fear of man. That we fear what others think of us more than we care what God thinks. And we do so at times to the detriment of our own community we need to pray for God to give us the courage to speak truth and love at appropriate times. We need to trust God's Spirit to use God's Word to do God's work in that person. It's not ultimately about us and what we're able to accomplish. We we leave that person to God and His work. And when we do speak to others, well then, beloved, we need to do it directly from God's Word. We need to resist at all costs ambiguity that risks presuming on others and wrongly binding them to your standards and not God's. Well, I think, you could, I think you sinned against me. Well, what did I do? Well, I think you were inconsiderate. Well, can you tell me specifically what I did? I don't know. I just feel like that's the way that it was. You were just inconsiderate. You've been inconsiderate toward me you realize that an individual can't repent from sin that is not truly sin, that isn't sin defined by the Bible. And even if they do, it's not true repentance because it's not true sin that they're repenting from. It's your own made-up laws. And that is a good way to beat down fellow saints. So we open up the Bible and we draw straight lines from God's law to define sin. We don't operate according to the standards of how our heart feels toward that individual at any given moment because our hearts are easily deceived. And they easily raise up our own standards for judging others. And that is at the very heart of legalism. And we can't do it. We open up the Bible and we draw straight lines from the Bible to that person. Brother and sister, at this time when you did this or when you said this, I fear that it may be contrary to what we see here in God's word. And I would just ask you to consider that. We also need to remember that when we do speak in godly ways and maybe that other person gets angry or offended or defensive, more often than not, their response really has nothing to do with you. As one person put it, you will always touch a nerve when you poke someone in the idols. Don't respond in anger. Pray for them and leave the Lord to his work. Finally, if someone speaks the truth in love to you, That is, you're the one receiving a rebuke, or a correction, or an exhortation. How should you respond? Well, first of all, assume the best of their motives. Assume that they are aiming to do you good because they love you, and they're doing their best to obey God's word in what they're doing. That's a good thing for you and for them. Assume the best of their motives. They mean well, and then receive it humbly. Resist being defensive. Sometimes, the words of others, as they open up the Bible, God just shows us, and our sins are so obvious to us, we go, oh, man, yeah, I did it. I'm so sorry. But there are other times when maybe you don't see it so quickly. And so I would encourage you in those times, don't flatter that person with false sorrow or empty repentance. You might say something like, brother or sister, thank you for loving me enough to say something. I'm sure that was not easy to do. Would you let me think and pray about what you said? wonder if you might give me a little bit of time to ask some others who are close to me if they see the same thing and then get back to you for counsel would you continue to pray for me as i do that maybe we can circle back let's put something on the calendar let's get coffee in a couple weeks imagine for a minute what kind of gospel culture is produced by godly truth speaking and regular repentance in the life of the church that seems to be the missing ingredient to the Corinthian church. Their tolerance of this man's sin is one reason that things got to this point. And the church's failure is as scandalous as the man's sin is. So Paul tells them to separate from the man, not only for his good, but for the good of the church. Put the bad leaven out before it leavens the whole lump. But finally, in verses 9 through 13, Paul tells them to do it for the good of the watching world. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since since then you would need to go out of the world. It seems here that Paul's already addressed them. They already know what to do and how to relate this man, and they just haven't done it. He's written on the topic before to them. We see that there at the beginning of verse 9. But the Corinthians responded by, it seems, trying to separate themselves from unbelievers in the world. They were getting into the business of judging the world, and that's God's job. I see that there at the end of verse 13. But they weren't concerned for its salvation. They love having all kinds of things to judge the world by, but they're not concerned ultimately with their repentance and faith in the gospel. And so Paul here is not calling them and he's not calling us to avoid sinners because then we would have to go out of the world. No, we're to be engaged in the world. And of course you and I are going to try to make wise decisions about where we go and what we watch and who we relate to and what we listen to. But if we cut ourselves entirely from the world, if we stifle our gospel witness by making ourselves little kind of spiritual ghettos and we do the world no good, we're ultimately a missionary people, stewards of the gospel for the world's sake and the glory of God. And the world needs to know about the cross of Jesus. Needs to know about the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He needs to know about our Passover Lamb. So he can't come out of the world. And so then in verses 11 and 12, he corrects their error. He says this, but now I'm writing to you not to associate. He says, listen, it's okay in wise ways to associate with the sexually immoral of this world. So you're not going out of the world, but I'm writing to you, verse 11, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. He says, don't judge the world. That's God's job. But you are to make godly judgments on fellow church members. You're to judge not only what they confess with their lips when you bring them into the membership of the church, but you are to judge what their lives say with how they live. Is it in keeping with the gospel or is it contrary to the gospel? And do they persist in it? Are they responsive to God's word or are they resistant to God's word? Do they love their sin more than they love their savior? And so when someone, call, someone among you, he says, calls themselves a Christian, But they are living in persistent, unrepentant sin, Paul says, that's the one that you can't associate with. Now, to be clear, what Paul is not talking about is disassociating from Christians battling with sin in the normal Christian life. That's all of us. Okay, let's get that clear. All of us sin in different ways. What's in view here is persistent, unrepentant sin. So sin is not the issue, unrepentant sin is the issue. And maybe because Paul, maybe because he knows how legalistic and superficial our hearts can be. Well, Paul's just talking here about sexual immorality, and that's not my sin, so he can't be talking about me. He reminds us that there are all kinds of sins beyond sexual immorality that can get us to the same point that this man has reached. So Paul says, for the sake of the church's witness to the world, don't even eat with them. What does that mean, don't even eat with them? I would take the primary meaning of the term to be remove this person from the church's membership, and the church's membership is signified by the Lord's Supper. That's what we're going to do here. If you're a member of our church or you're a member of good standing of another church baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, then you're welcome to come forward to the table. But insofar as the Lord's Supper symbolizes the church's membership, marks us off from the world, then to remove someone from the membership of the church is to excommunion them. It's to remove them from the table. And we're not to eat with them in that way. They are excommunicated. They are no longer welcome at the table of the Lord with the members of the church. I think that's the primary meaning. You see the same kind of language in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 of eating together. And I think that's what he has in view here. But I think we would shortchange the text if we didn't also acknowledge that Paul's exhortation seems to suggest other kinds of of gatherings or associations that might imply Christian fellowship. Now I don't need to tell you that working this out in practice isn't simple. It requires a lot of wisdom because every single situation is different. Every context is different. And so a lot of wisdom is needed. But at the very least, what Paul's words, don't even eat with such a one, what his words lead us to think about is what our association with that individual communicates to them the church and to the world do we risk confusing others about who God is and what he does for sinners in the gospel do we risk confusing that individual or the world or even the church as a whole on what it is that God demands from his redeemed people as those who would live holy lives in the world Paul's concern is that by persisting with this man, continuing to associate with him, you're undermining and confusing the gospel for him, for the church, and for the world. And it can't keep going. Paul says, Israel was redeemed from, from slavery to Egypt to serve the Lord in Canaan. And in an even greater sense, you have been redeemed from slavery to sin to serve the Lord. So be holy as God is holy. Be a light to the nations. In verse 8, living lives of sincerity and truth. some final comments on how this might apply to our own church. First of all, this text is not here to inspire a kind of critical culture in our church, where every church member is a kind of sin hunter without compassion, where we become sin detectives but never grace detectives. And so it doesn't give us permission to lack compassion toward human frailty and weakness toward the very real struggle against sin in the flesh that all of us face. And beloved, neither is it an excuse for power plays among church leaders. Do what I say or you're out. You can't find that anywhere in the Bible and you don't find it in this passage. And so pastors, elders need to remember especially that before we're church leaders, we are church members. That we are both shepherd and sheep. And that means that there is no place for leaders to look at their flocks and say, repentance for thee, but not for me. Godly pastors, godly elders aim to lead by God's grace in all things, especially in repentance. We've got to be the first to take egg on the face for our sin and our weakness and our frailty and our lack of wisdom. But what this text should inspire us to do is to come to Jesus together. To press in to follow him as our Lord. And at this end, our primary aim must be one of encouragement because being a Christian is hard. Satan is real and our sin is stubborn. Or is it just mine? And we can all grow weary, can't we? Remember that weary sinners are more likely to press on in holiness by encouragement rather than scolding. That's true in our homes, and it's certainly true in the church. Let's work together to build the kind of encouraging culture that that meets the confession of sin with truth and compassion and prayer and help. So we want to strive to be the kind of church that... That you can bring your sins to me because I'm going to bring you to Jesus. And I can bring my sins to you because you are going to bring me to Jesus. Beloved, maybe there's even right now unconfessed sin in your life that you're conscious of. Maybe even the Lord over the course of the last 30, 40 minutes has brought it to your mind and go, this has been persistent and unrepentant in my life and maybe nobody even knows about it except you and God. First of all, I would say if it's persisted in your life, then you need to fear God. Because there will come a day that your private sin will be made public for all to see. And if you will not turn from it, then you will face the judgment of an all-holy Christ and His Sword of the spirit when he returns that you would repent from it but I would also encourage you that if if you are conscious of it beloved listen to me that's a good thing the devil would have you feel shame for seeing it say don't go to God don't go to Jesus all he's gonna do is look at you and say really again son figure this thing out Come back and see me again when you get it figured out. That's a lie, and you don't believe him. You go straight to Jesus. You consider God's goodness, and you go straight to Jesus. You consider, again, the character of God and what he's done for you in the gospel, and you go straight to Jesus. Because our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And when we confess our sins to him, the Bible says he is faithful and just to forgive us. And he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that good news for sinners like you and sinners like me? This means that Jesus overflows with inexhaustible compassion towards sinners like you and all of your weakness. He's not gonna say to you, Oh, you again? Quite the opposite. Oh, beloved, he gives you 24-7 access to the throne of grace so that you can get all the help that you need in your your time of need, whenever you need it, which is pretty much, you know, well, 24-7. It's all the time. That's why it's always open. That we would go to Jesus together. That we wouldn't end up here, but in the rare moments, Lord forbid that we do, When any of our members persistently deny Jesus' lordship with their lives and they won't turn from sin, then, beloved, may we not lean on our own wisdom, but will we love them in a way that God defines love. May we submit ourselves to God's word, even if it means separating from them for their good, for the good of our church and for the good of the world. Let's pray.